Hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. My name is Alex, I am one of the two hosts that we have on the show, and there is another one, and he's right here. Hi, I'm Alaric. Hello, he's Alaric. Uh, are you are you doing well today? Yeah, I'm fine. It's uh, getting closer and closer to Halloween over here. Yes, Spookoween approaches. Uh, this um, is our spooky Halloween special. Yes, blue. This is the Halloween special where Alaric came up with spooky problems and I couldn't think of one. Very spooky. It was surprisingly hard. It is. There's not much mathematics in Halloween. When we did the Christmas episode, it was really easy. Like, we both thought of ones instantly. We came up with yeah. two each. Yeah. And I've had two weeks to think of Halloween things and I've got some which are vaguely Halloweeny. Vaguely Halloweeny. So welcome to your vaguely spooky episode. <laughs> Odds in the evening. I think there just isn't that much attached to Halloween in the UK yet. We're in that generation where American Halloween just about came in towards the end of our child days of it. But like, I've never been trick or treating. We didn't. We need. We didn't think of a kind of spooky name for our show. But our name's already. You know, our show's already got kind of a spooky name. Does it? Well, it's odds and evenings. It's like oh, something's odd and in the evening. Okay. (laughs) I mean, there's not really much that's kind of. You could add on to that. Evening's already a pretty spooky word. Yeah, I can't think of any puns around it. No, there's nothing. Um, okay. That was fun. Do you want to do some maths? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Right. Zombies and maybe vampires as well. Hmm. So, I've been thinking about how to model uh, these things. Yeah. Now, if you do any mathematical biology at university you'll do something called the SIR model which is susceptible infected removed it's, it's usually used for modeling diseases right uh, which you can think of zombies a bit like so yeah because that's the kind of the modern interpretation of zombies is not one of the dead coming back from the grave it's one of ooh, they've got a infection yeah oh no yeah yeah so you start off with most people susceptible and a few infected and then the more infected there are and the more susceptible there are, then the more the rate of change of the susceptible into the infected. Because there's, if there's lots of zombies around to infect you, then you're more likely to get infected yourself. Sure. And if there's lots of susceptible people, there's lots of people there to be able to turn into zombies. Removed in this is what happens to the infected after that. So it might be for a particular disease that you just cured and you're then immune. Or it could be that you die. It doesn't really matter from the perspective of the disease. You're still removed from the model. Right. So there's a sort of standard decay rate. Yeah. Or is it agent-based? Do you, do you keep track of a particular person? Or do you just do it based on the population? You just do it based on the population. Okay. And um, each of these things... Like, you've got three systems of equations here. You've got one for susceptible, one for infected, and one for removed. Each is a differential equation. And when you've got a whole lot of systems like that, it's non-linear. And so in general, mm. you can't solve it. But you can use something called the Newton method, which is like a numerical approach to doing it. It's, it's like you're approximating it, first order approximations. Yeah. And it's really effective. I, I've built a, a one in Excel which models this. If people want to have a play around with that, I'll put it in the show notes. But what that does is that models it just generally in the population. It has no kind of consideration of where these things are, like whether people are near zombies, whether there's little clumps of zombies going around. What I thought there might be some potential for here is using a cellular automata like Conway's Game of Life and having like a two-species version and mm-hmm. trying to model it. 
And I was thinking about two things in particular. I was thinking, could you make a Conway's Game of Life which modelled uh, a zombie outbreak? And could you model a Conway's Game of Life which modelled, like, a healthy population of humans, but with, like, a sub-species like the vampires, which I'm calling them in my mind, Yeah. which live amongst them but don't kill off the humans, where they can live almost like a parasite host system? So, so they thrive if there are others around. Yeah. But they don't they don't remove the others. Yeah. Or they don't okay. remove enough that it wouldn't bounce back. Ah, got it. So I, I'm imagining maybe like 10% of the uh, the parasite, the vampire. Could you make one which was a stable Conway's Game of life sort, of life sort of system? I thought we could just think about the kind of models here. Yeah. Like, what would we want from our system? So there were two different things you wanted to achieve, right? What was the first one? Zombie outbreak. We're going to have uh, a stable, well, stableish human population. I'm kind yeah. of imagining that the human population here is going to be just the base rules of Conway's Game of Life. They'll survive if they've got two or three neighbours. They'll get removed if they've only got one or zero neighbours from underpopulation. And they'll die if there's, there are four or more members around them uh, from overpopulation. Think of it as lack of food, maybe. Then we're going to have a second species, maybe a different colour which um, they're going to be the zombies and we're going to have to think about how the rules are going to work for propagation of, and like dying of those yeah how do okay. zombies work so here's a question yep for you in the human rule of propagation does a zombie count as someone being nearby yeah good question I suppose the human rule was are there enough people there to breed to make the next generation Right. So it feels like the zombies would not be useful there. And then, do you think that one zombie nearby is sufficient to infect somebody? Because my hunch is no, right? I feel like it should be have to be two nearby. Mm. But then, if there's two nearby, what does that mean for... You know, if there's two zombies nearby, it means there are not two humans nearby. So, what's going on there? Well, there could be both. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to make sure that the rule for two zombies doesn't just mean the human will die. Yeah, when you want to kind of override the other. I think given that it's zombies, I think the zombies should override. I agree. They should turn the human one, uh, human square into a zombie square, rather than killing it off. Yes. Zombies make more of themselves. So it means you need to have layers. Like, you need to have a priority layer. Like, you resolve the zombies, and then you resolve the humans, and then you resolve the zombies, then you resolve the humans. It's almost like there's a two-step process to this. Well, in normal Conway's Game of Life, there are only two states, and both of them have sufficient rules that you can do them in either order. They're both happening at the same time step. Yes, exactly. Whereas with zombies, I don't think that's the case. I think you could model it as the case if you had a sort of... You had a list of all the different states here. So, like, though you have eight squares around them, and it could be done in kind of um, ranges. So if you have two humans and no zombies, or three humans and no zombies, then you survive. The statements talk about both the uh, the zombies and the humans around them. Yeah, if you did it based on what's around you, you have three to the power of eight different yeah. configurations. Take out of. the symmetries, because this is going to be rotationally reflectively symmetrical. Okay, so what does that mean? That means fewer. <laughs> yes, so it's three to the power of two. I, I think we also don't care about, like, we only care about how many. We don't care where they are. Sure. Because that makes it like normal's com- Conway's Game of Life. So then you need to find all the different ways you can add three different numbers up to get eight. Yeah. I think a lot of these you can just write out straight away, though. 
like more than three humans automatically means you're going to die of overpopulation irrespective of whether a zombie got you. Yeah, but by saying that, you've now made it so that that has priority over zombies, right? So if you say if there's two zombies nearby, yep. then you get turned into a zombie. Well, what if there's two zombies nearby and three humans? Uh, yeah, I think that should turn it into a zombie. Like, this right, is all so, arbitrary, but we have to make calls. Yeah, so you have to make bit. decisions. So either you do what you're saying, where you just map out, you know, for all the different things, what does it do? Or you have a layered rule system of, you know, zombies always take priority over humans or something like that, or vice versa. I think I think these are kind of equivalent. Yes, yes, they are. But it's a matter of relative complexity. Okay. Valiance. Is that the word? Yes. I guess so. <laughs> Anything could be thalians when you put your mind to it. Yeah, no, but it's about communicating it, right? Yep. So it is thalians. I want to see which system looks best just playing around with the different numbers here. Mm-hmm. And then we can talk about what the best way of uh, communicating it is. Okay. What the smallest rule set that gets to the particular one I want is. Yeah. How are we going to test this rule set? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Manual. <laughs> Do you have a go board on you? No, I do not. It's uh, not the type of thing I own. Mine's out of reach. Oh no. <laughs> but I do have a pen and paper. So, you were talking about how many zombies it would take to convert someone. I feel yeah. in, in a zombie outbreak, any number of zombies making contact with a human should be fatal to them. Oh, you think it's one? I'm kind of expecting the zombie outbreak to die off quickly, to have a really high infection rate. So it's incredibly infectious, so you only need one nearby. Like, basically anything adjacent to a zombie becomes a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. So, humans that are not next to a zombie, but are next to two or three other humans, stay alive, just like normal Conway's game of life. Mm-hmm. A dead space, by which I mean actually dead rather than undead, becomes born if it's got exactly three neighbours, just like normal Conway's game of life. Yeah. I can hear how proud you are of that joke, by the way, in your tone of voice. <laughs> Carry on. We just need to throw in the zombie thing. Yeah. So if a human had two or three neighbours and there's a zombie next to them, it's obvious what should happen. They should turn into a zombie. My question is, what happens to the humans where they were by themselves and so would have died of underpopulation, but they're next to a zombie? Does the zombie uh, sink their teeth in just before the end? I think given that the zombies have already got a pretty good infection rate with their one adjacency I, I think that would tip it over the edge a little bit yeah okay and how about the same the other end so if they would have died of overpopulation we'll have them actually dying rather than turning into zombies as yes. well yes of course um now question for you is do can zombies die of overpopulation yeah that's what we need to deal with like think of your favorite zombie film do the zombies die if they don't have enough food or do they just walk around forever I don't know, I've only ever seen Shaun of the Dead, it's the only zombie film I've ever seen. And it doesn't last long enough. In fact, no, they, they feed them in Shaun of the Dead. Spoilers. When he's in the shed at the end. Hmm. From a thermodynamics point of view, right? This isn't magic, this is an infection. Right. They need energy in. Yeah. So I think of overpopulations. Or, hmm. So the underpopulation definitely die. Maybe they always need humans around. As soon as the last human goes, they're going to die out. As soon as the last one goes. You could do something with with increased radius, right? If, there isn't, if there's no human within two or three, then they die off. Uh, I see. Yeah, that gives them a bit of a, a time lag before they die. 
Yeah, but what you, that does just mean you're just going to have a wave of zombification going through the humans that yep. just dies off after a, two, after a two or three square radius. So maybe you have them die instantly. Because, yeah, I agree. It's going to be normal Conway's game of life, and then it's all suddenly going to go to whatever your secondary colour is, and then it's all going to die. Yeah. Which is probably pretty right. Yeah, I just sort of always thought that maybe zombies would be a legitimate life form. Like, my favourite horror film, not that I have very many horror films, but it's it's the Alien series. Okay. And the xenomorph is kind of like... Like, you can see how it works biologically. Yeah. You have the, the whole breeding the cycle. Huggers in, yep. And then the facehuggers will plant the alien in the, in, the, in the life form, and then out will pop an alien, which will then make the eggs to make the facehuggers. Like, it's, it's clear. Whereas zombies... I kind of want them to be a legitimate life form, kind of. I think thinking about them not as an animal, but as a virus, or some sort of infection. So if you play something like Pandemic, diseases yeah. kill by accident. Diseases don't want to kill animals. The really fatal ones are ones where they've transitioned from an animal into humans, which is a rare enough event, but when it does happen, it's bad. So when you've got something like smallpox or something, it was designed to being passed from one cow to the other killing is a side effect of that thing yeah it's like the most successful diseases are colds and flus because they don't actually kill people they just cause you to cough and sneeze and pass it on yeah rather than yeah and so i view zombies a bit like that as a mistake yeah oops accidentally killed my host accidentally killed the species which was uh hosting this uh passing on of genes yeah that's fair that's fair i think that's a pretty good model for what we have for zombies then I think the one you're angling towards to have the actual like biological thing in there is the one I mentioned at the start with vampires. So I was mm. wondering, instead of modelling a zombie outbreak, could we do one where you've got two species? I imagine the humans, again, just obeying normal Conway's Game of Life rules, and I'm imagining the vampires being a much smaller population, perhaps like 1%, perhaps 10%, I don't know. We'll see what works. And I was I was kind of hoping that there'd be like a, a parasite host thing rather than symbiotic. So like the parasite doesn't particularly want to kill its host species. It wants to create something which is stable enough that neither the humans nor the vampires go extinct. Right. So how do you reflect that in a Conway's Game of Life type environment? Well, I've got one thing here. I, I've sent you the uh, the file. Yeah. This, this problem is one I was thinking about a couple of years ago, and um, I had a student come up to me and ask, uh, so we, we do these things called extended projects, EPQs, extended project qualification, where in their second year, students go and write a 5,000 word pro- um, essay about some project, and I was working on this two species stuff back then, and uh, one of the students ran with it and created a, a project around it, and one of the things he did was code up a sim of it. Now, I can't remember the details of what he was doing, but he gave me his um, his files, and uh, on it is a, a sim that you can play with, a two-species one. And I can't remember which rules he was doing, but having played around a little bit with it, it seems to be you've got a normal population, and then you've got something very similar to what I was describing with the vampires here. So I'm just having a play with it now. It's like the rule is, if there's one adjacent to it, it will infect. Yep. So I'm just doing a... Uh, did a square, and now I'll... I put a red next to the square, it goes... Dump. Oh, that didn't work at all. What were you expecting it to? I did a Conway 2x2. Okay. Which is typically still life. A block? In Conway's yep. Game of Life. 
Yep. And then I did a parasite next to it. Okay. And what happened was the parasite stayed where it was, and the left two squares died, which mm. doesn't make sense to me. If you did a block, just like you did before, but you took out one of the corners not next to the parasite, yeah, and then put the parasite next to it, in that one, the parasite converts the two next to it, but not the one further away, so it actually does the conversion. I think what might be happening here is the cells are counting how many squares are around them in total, parasite or not, and they're still dying from overpopulation. Ah, uh, okay. So, so it's counting the, the parasite as part of the overpopulation in this. Hmm, which is not um, not exactly what we were talking about. No, it's different. I don't know how to get into the uh, the editable of this file. Hmm. I'll have yeah. that around. Yeah. Okay, how do vampires recreate? It feels you need a vampire and a human to create one. Just yeah. like a zombie would. Yeah. And then the vampire will sire the human. Yeah. But it feels like it should be a rarer event. Than... Yes. Like it should be probabilistic. Yeah. So maybe you do something where you actually... Yeah. No, probabilistic is nice. Now, remember vampires don't die of old age. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's good. So we make it actually a really rare event that they sire someone else, that they turn them into a vampire. Yeah. But that they still do kill people. My law on... Uh, Vampires comes from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Where most of the time they are going around feeding on people, but then occasionally they will sire someone else to make them into a vampire as well. Right. And I, I know that probabilistic is getting away from the heart of like a cellular automata, but what we're trying to do here is do some nice modelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you do that, you will end up with a situation where the vampires will, over time, take over. Yeah. Which is not optimal. Because they never die. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, we need a third party in here. We yeah, need we need slayers. a vampire hunter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every generation, one is chosen. There are cellular automata which uh, work on that kind of rock, paper, scissors-ness. I think there's literally one called rock, paper, scissors. Hmm. It's uh, a continuous thing. Rocks and paper, scissors and scissors. Yeah. Yeah. You start off with a grid covered in three colours. They look like big sloshy fluids. And then uh, it's usually around continuous time as well. One colour is slowly seeping into one of the other colours, which is seeping into the other colour, which is seeping into the first colour. I used to love those Flash games. Yeah. Oh, the uh, ones with sandboxes. The, the sandbox, yeah, which had all the different colours of, of differently behaving particles. Yeah. And one would whoosh them around and one would explode and one would turn others into itself and yeah. Yeah, it was great. I, I still play with them sometimes. Endless fun. But yeah, I'm not sure how you do it without a third one, unless there is a small amount of overcrowding for vampires. Yeah. Like a, like a, there's a probabilistic overcrowding. You could just have the zombie rules, but zombie death or, or zombie infection is down to 10% of... Or you have it kind of Highlander style. There can be only one. So uh, when one vampire encounters another, is it they kill each other off, or one kills the other. Yeah, you just have to make sure that the the mechanics when you're doing the siring doesn't mean that oh, yeah. <laughs> it immediately kills the other one off. Well, I'm pleased with how many pop culture references we fit into this conversation. Right? Pretty Halloween-y. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> and you're talking to someone who's never watched Buffy, so... Really? Yeah, which oh. I know is a great cause of... Well, you know, except for the stuff you show me. Well, I mostly show you the musical episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's my reference for vampires? There's Van Helsing, 
There is, uh... I mean, Dracula. Was it called Venomon? There was one in Digimon. <laughs> I think Dracula is a lot of people's um, go-to lore in Vampires. Yeah, yeah. And there's Skyrim as well, as Vampires in. And I Am Legend, which they weren't really... Well, they were. Well, I don't know. They were kind of more like zombies, but they were called vampires. But that was just the daylight thing. I think our conclusion on this is there are lots of different ways you can do it. Yeah. Uh, it would be nice if we could get one which didn't involve probabilities, because it does feel like we're just fudging it then. Yeah, exactly. Um, once you open the door to that sort of thing, and to different ranges and that sort of thing, you can make whatever system you want. The nice thing about Comics Game of Life is that there are so few rules. It's so neat and deterministic. And you still get that complexity. Yeah, every time I bring up games at work, one of my colleagues always brings up uh, his measure for what a good game is, which is the uh, complexity divided by the number of rules. That's nice. That there are. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe not divided by, but you know, like the ratio between the two. Which I know is divided by, but you know. More abstractly. Yeah. Than just one divided by the other. It's like, how many rules are there? And how deep is the game? Which actually means that uh, one of our favourite games, Magic the Gathering, is not a very good game because the rules <laughs> are uh, like a book. Yeah. You try writing yeah. down the rules. Yeah. Can't do it. So, conversations. Spooky. Are you, fam- are you familiar with conversations? Yes, yeah, very am. spooky. Yes. This is a light follow-on to something that we did last episode. Or in fact, is a direct follow-on, but it's going to come in from an oblique angle. Okay. So, you know when you are in a large conversational group, like there might be eight of you around a table or so. Okay. You'll find, anecdotally, that you'll never really be having a conversation with all eight at the same time. Okay. That's why we have such things as speeches and presentations. Yeah. And you can't just sit around and have a chat about things. What tends to happen is that the conversation will fragment into groups. Okay, yep. I'm familiar with the concept. And it'll fragment into groups of size 2, 3, and 4. Never really 5. It feels like the higher the group, the less probability it has of happening. Oh, you think that as well? I hadn't thought about that. So 2s are more likely. Than 3s, yeah. Hmm. And and they're more likely than 4s. And 5s are wildly unlikely. I've never really experienced a good conversation with 5 people at the same time. It always does seem to break up. Into, into a three and a two. And so I was reading a paper about this, scientific paper. Yep. And it was asking why. Why is this? Okay. Case. And there's a little bit of maths behind it. I mean, they really overreg the maths on this. Like, you can tell this has come from psychologists and not mathematicians because it took them about four pages to say this with massive graphs and they were all very pleased with themselves. But nonetheless, obviously the first thing you should do is you should think about it like a graph. Okay. Yep. Naturally. We do a lot of graph theory on this show. Have you noticed? I, yeah. It's in our wheelhouse. Both of us yeah. are able to do it. Yeah, I guess so. And if you think about a graph of two people, yep. there are two nodes and one arc. Okay, yep. And if you think of a graph of three people, there are three nodes and three arcs. Yep, the K3 graph. And a free. graph of four people is four nodes and six arcs. And a graph of five people is five nodes and uh, I guess ten. Yep, stronger numbers. Now... You can see that clearly the number of arcs is is sort of running away from the number of nodes. Okay. Because the number of arcs goes as n. And then the other one's n, n plus 1 over 2? 
the yeah, left I think it's half. Of... I think it's half n n plus one. Yeah. No, it's a half n n minus one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's no real sort of tipping point because we're we're trying to work out what's different about five and not four, right? Because five is the number of people you can't have in a conversation, and okay. four is four is sustainable, but five isn't. Okay. And so, what's the difference between the two? So, if you look at them, you'll see that four has four notes and six arcs. Okay. And five has five notes and ten arcs. And really, there's not a lot of difference between those two numbers, pairs of numbers. Like, one is larger than the other. Okay. And maybe with five, like, yeah, that's twice as large, but really, that doesn't really matter too much. So, what is it? Like, what is the difference? And, um, well... I mean, do you want to sound off about this and then I'll yeah. tell you what the paper says? Yeah. So, it seems strange to me comparing these numbers from the complete graph. To me, it feels like it, it's all dependent on how many people you've got around in the room. If there are seven people around the table, yeah. no one is going to be left off by themselves. So that rules out all the subgroups of one. So the possible subgroups, there's only... You could do five and two if you needed to. But there's, that seems like one of many possibilities. But anecdotally, you'll never have a five. That's yeah. also that's 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 a that's an assumption of this paper. So you're why, getting why does five seem impossible? Yeah, four and three, or two and two and three. I don't know. I, it, it feels like two and two and three is more likely than four and three anyway. I think they're just lower numbers are more likely to happen. But I would like us to remove the concept of things being more likely and think about possible versus impossible. Okay. With the assumption that five is impossible. Okay. What is, what is it that is interesting and impossible about five as opposed to four? I I don't know. Yeah. So the paper has a suggestion. Um, the paper's suggestion is that in a conversation, you are modelling all the pairs of indi- of individuals in your head. Okay. And so uh, if you're in a group of three, let's say it's you, me, and Mew. Yep. You're modelling your conversation with me. My conversation with Mew and Mew's conversation with you. Yep. So those those are the arcs is the, is the sort of is the interactions between two individuals. Okay. If you take an individualist perspective on this, rather than thinking about the conversation as a as as a as a collection. Yep. You can start to think of it from a more selfish perspective. I want to have a good conversation. Where you just instead of looking top down from a graph, pretend you're one of the nodes and okay. have a think about this. There is a difference between the arcs like there's two different categories of arc there's arcs that you're involved with and arcs you're not involved with yep and so in the case of four there are three arcs you are involved with and three that you're not okay so that's even like that's equal but when you get to five there are four arcs that you're involved with and six that you're not i see okay and so at that point you're modeling more tuples that you're not involved with than you are and so then the conversation becomes sort of unstable and uncomfortable. And that's why five breaks down into something a lot more comfortable. Where most of the interactions between pairs of individuals are framed appropriately in your head. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, that that is interesting. And so that's that's the that's the, 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 the postulate of, of the paper. Arcs that you're involved with goes as N minus one. Yep. And arcs that you're not involved with goes as half N, N minus one minus n minus one so even if you take out this limit of it artificially switching when you go from uh more that you're involved in to fewer that still pays heedance to the idea of smaller 
is more likely. In a two-person conversation, you are involved in 100% of those two pools. In a three-person conversation, you're involved in two out of the three. Yeah. In the four, it's up down to a half. As you go on past five, you're less and less of the possible two pools, which would explain why six is less likely than five. Yeah. So your one is just setting the uh, the impossible at a certain bar. You're saying there's a yes. distinct change in behaviour between four and five because it's when it outnumbers that is uncomfortable for humans. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so all this was just a bit of a preamble and, a, and an aside for what a paper that I read once was talking about. What I really want to get onto, though, is a question that we asked last week in the context of time signatures. So this is the one where we're breaking into uh, twos and threes. Yes, so in, in the time signature conversation, we were saying, given a, a set of size n, how many different ways are there of breaking it into subsets of size two and three? Yep. That's fine. That's how time signatures work, twos and threes. But conversations work in twos, threes, and fours. Okay, I see. And so now I'm asking, given a set of n, how many different ways are there breaking it into two, three, and four? So, and we... so we've, we've reached related mathematics between conversations and time signatures, and I think that's really pretty. Yeah, um, I agree. But, um, yeah. Uh... We had a hypothesis last time about what happens with three. We were talking about yes, we it did. with twos, threes, and fives, because we were talking about it in terms of primes. What was our pattern with just two of them? It was that kind of delayed Fibonacci, wasn't it? Yeah, so with two of them, it was um, the number of ways of breaking up a number is the number of ways of breaking up that number minus two and the number of ways of breaking up that number minus three. Okay. So two and three. And then and then what we did is, is we said, well, what about two and five? Like, let's imagine that time signatures are broken down into beat sizes of two and beat sizes of five fictional alternate universe where that's how human brains work yeah um and we found well we didn't prove but we found very strong wink wink nudge nudge towards that it was n minus two and n minus five in those okay. cases yep but you'll notice that two and three are primes and two and five are primes we're, we're doing two different things at the same time now when we're thinking about this one yep i agree which is that we are doing three and also four is a multiple of two Okay, so if this doesn't work how we expect, then we could try just changing one of those things. Well, it means something more interesting is going on. Yeah. Yeah. In theory, it should be A of N is A of N minus 2 plus A of N minus 3 plus A of N minus 4. I don't think this is what it's going to be, but let's see. So what are we trying to manually break up here? Because we can't do some of the smaller ones because they're just not big enough. Well, I think maybe you can do two because... With two, it's 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 one, and with three, it's one, and with four, it's two. Like we Ding. can seed those. Yep. Okay. So two, three, four, go one, one, two. For five. Two, three, that's... three, two. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Two, three, and three, and two. And for six. Two, four, four, two, three, three. And two, two, two. Ah, uh, and two, two, two. So there's four ways. So if we just look at whether that's fitting the pattern, we're yeah. saying that that one should have been the same as 2 before, plus 3 before, plus 4 before. Yeah. Which would be 2 plus 1 plus 1, which is 4. So that works. That works. So far. <laughs> okay. So the next one, 7. What seven. ways can we do that? Right. Four Let's do 4 and 3. Yep. And 3 and, and 4. And 3 and 4. Yeah. 
I'm going into a tallying based system now. And then for each of the four and three, let's go two, two, three, three, two, two, and then two, three, two. Okay, so that's never three of them. And then I think that's everything. So we're seeing five. Yeah. Right? Um, that feels like everything, right? Yep, I agree. Two before, three before. That works as a rule? That works. Yeah. This is getting disturbingly elegant. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's too good. Uh, let's just try eight. So, two, 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 two. We've got two, three, three, and the two variations on that one. So just cycling them around. Three, two, three, 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 two. Then we've got four, two, two, and its other two variations. Yeah. Partly cycling around the things. Two, four, four, two, 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 four. Yeah. And then we've got four, four. Yeah. um, Which is one of them. Yeah. So in total, eight. Nope. Got all the twos. I've included that one. You have? Okay. So I had the, a bit like that Romero Pascal Strangle where it goes one, three, three, one. We've got one from the two, 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 two. We've got three variations on the two, three, three. We've got three variations on the four, two, two. And we've got one variation on the four, four. Hmm. Which is right? Yeah. <laughs> Does this work for all numbers? And for Does like... this work? Yeah. Does this just work for any time you want to decompose a number into any number of numbers? But it's interesting because I didn't think this would work. Yeah. Because why is it adding up two ago, three and going four ago? It, like in, in in my head, there'd be like way more double counting than this because the interaction between the twos and the fours. Well, it's just that I thought that it would be. How many different ways are there of doing two and three? How many different ways are there of doing three and four? How many different ways are there of doing two and four? And how many different ways are there of doing them when they're all together? It's like it's taking care of all of that for us. But somehow it's just one plus another plus another, instead of like two times each of them plus an extra factor. Yeah. Which is a bit interesting. Maybe, and I don't think we're going to have time to do this, and please let's not try this potentially an exercise for the listener but it's to run all four of those sequences on top of each other and see how they sum so you run the twos and threes you run the threes and fours you run the twos and fours and you run the extra one where you've got three different types going on at the same time yeah and see so what are you expecting there well it's just it's a bit more of an insight Hmm. into why it's why it is the way that that is because we still don't have an elegant solution for why this is the formula. But it seems to be the case. Relating to the one that we did last time, which was when we only had uh, the music one breaking into twos and threes. Yeah. I did a bit more googling around. This is a while ago. Uh, they have a name. They call the Padovan sequence. P- yes. P-A-D-O-V-A-N. But there were a couple of nice visualisations which may help people understand kind of what's going on here. So it was the sequence where it went like one one one, two two three four, and so on. It was to work out the next term. You add the one from two before and three before. So it's Fibonacci with a lag. There are two ways of visualizing it geometrically. Way number one is instead of thinking of it as a Fibonacci spiral, where you start off with uh, two one by one squares, and then you keep. Um, adding the next square which like fits flush with their sides two then three then five and so on making a big spiral around the paper yeah. if you start with 
uh, cubes, a one cube uh, and a one cube, and then you keep putting cuboids next to them so it's flush with their sides, spiralling out in a 3D way. That's what it generates. It's like a, the 3D version of the Fibonacci spiral. Hmm. Or another way to think of it with that same kind of lag, instead of, if you keep it in 2D, instead of doing your squares, start off with equilateral triangles, three of them, one, 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 uh, arranged like next to each other, and then keep join the next equilateral triangle that joins onto them, flush with their sides. It's one to see the picture of, really. But it makes yeah. it the same sequence. It gives it with a lag. Fibonacci with a lag. Weird. Upper link. It's good though. I like it. Yeah. But I I wonder if these things give an insight as to what's happening with the combinatorics when you can go and kind of just see it. Has it derailed what you were going to say by it being neater than you expected? No, hasn't derailed anything. I wanted to know. Okay. <laughs> it's just a shorter segment because it turns <laughs> out. That that exact formula just works. <laughs> we think. We have done a whole seven terms. Yeah, maybe it's one of these things that breaks down at like n equals twenty seven or something like that. Oh. Like if we do two times three times four <laughs> Do we have to go up to the more multiplied together and then it starts going weird? Exercise for the listener. Go up to n equals twenty five. Yeah, what's happened <laughs> here? is we're in exactly the same situation as we were at at the end of the time signature one. In that yeah. we've got a neat answer, but even less idea as to how this one works. Why? Because there's three elements. <laughs> and they're three elements that are, you know, one's a multiple of the other. So that should have added some weirdness, but it it didn't. Yeah. Spooky. Yeah, I, I, I really did not. Yeah, this is the real. This is the spookiest <laughs> episode of them all because <laughs> the maths is being far too tidy. I haven't yet carved a pumpkin, but will have presumably carved a pumpkin by the time this episode comes out. Mm. And do you know what Borromean rings are? I call them Borromean rings, and yes. So before we define them here, just a word on the uh, the word that we're using here. Uh, the Borromean rings are named after the Borromeo family that has the free ring version as part of their crest. Hmm. Brunian rings, B-R-U-N-N, etc. seems to refer to the topic in general when we're talking about the topology of these things. Oh, that's weird and I don't like it. I know. Why are those words too similar? <laughs> in my mind, they were all Borromean, but then I did a bit of research related with this section and realised I'd been calling them the wrong name. Do you want to explain what Brunian rings are. Uh, so in the case of three, they are three rings, neither two of which are interlinked, but all three are interlinked. So, and so if you if, if you were to pick any two, they don't like they don't go through the center of the other, but all three can't come apart. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the phenomenological. Like if you were to pick them up, that would kind of be what you observed. So they're not acting like links in a chain, but no. if you got your pliers out and cut one of them everything would be able to separate. Is that the definition? So even when you have up to like five or something, does that exist? Like if, even if you had up to five, if you cut one, everything would separate? Yes. Interesting. Um, one way you can generate it with N of them is, let's say you've got uh, like a metal ring and you want to attach an elastic band to it. Okay. The way you would do that is you put the one into the elastic band, which is a loop, yeah. through the middle of the hoop. Yeah. 
and then you and would then through itself through itself and it makes that kind of like and tug it yeah. yeah imagine you did that sort of link onto another elastic band you got the elastic band you attached it to and you did that sort of link to another elastic band and so on imagine you yeah. kept going round in a big loop of those the last one you wouldn't actually be able to do you'd have to like cut the elastic band uh, and then reseal it right to, to get it on but you can make a loop with n elastic bands each doing this kind of joint onto the next one those you wouldn't be able to separate which is why you have to cut it in the first place to get it like that but if you snapped any of those elastic bands then you would be able to free everything else so interesting it, it's, it's an a iterative way yeah and it's not to say it's the only way like it's not the same link that with those as you're doing with say the Borromean rings the three of them I think it's distinct from the pattern you get if you had three elastic bands doing that thing or maybe it isn't I don't know it's hard to visualize I don't know things. mine was a I'll dig it up <laughs> I'll show you <laughs> afterwards yeah um my question is how can I carve a pumpkin so that it has Brunian properties so that it remains vaguely spherical like pumpkin shaped but just cut into three or possibly more distinct pieces yeah I think those are my only properties what do you mean when you say a pumpkin has Brunian properties I want to cut the pumpkin so that it has Brunian properties I want to cleave it into three or more pieces mm. none of which are interlinked so that any, if I destroyed any one of the pieces then everything else would come apart and you're talking a hollow sphere I'm talking a sphere which has a certain amount of like thickness to it, yeah, but definitely has a kind of hole in the middle that I can put a candle. Right, a sphere with. I don't oh, know. I'm going to I'm going to use the complete wrong word here, and it's probably going to be some horrific biological thing. A sphere with an ab- an abscess. Yes, like pumpkins, they're probably uh, an inch thick the sides. Yeah, yeah. Um, does this pumpkin have a uh, a little hat you can take off? Sure. Because in order to things. carve it, that yeah. does that kind of changes the topology, yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. Well, I mean, by cutting a hole in the top, it's a bit like you start with a sphere and then you project it onto a plane. But yeah, it turns it, onto, it turns it into a plane if you do that. So it is topologically equivalent. But planes are it, it is it's impossible to make Brumian rings with a plane. You need three D space. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah. So not a plane. A uh, Gaussian uh, thingy, right? A big a cuboid, essentially. Yeah. That feels more difficult. I mean, look, like if you had a solid cuboid that had no hole in it, yep. you could just picture the 3D shape of what this looks like, and you could just carve it. Okay. You know, you would just do reverse 3D printing, right? You just remove the outside until what remains is, yeah. is yeah. these things. But I think you're asking for something a little more interesting, which is you don't have something solid. No. You're something with a hole in the middle of it. And granted, you can make lots of tiny ones off the one inch thickness that you have on the outside. But I think potentially mm. it's it's useful to think about a a hollow sphere. Okay. So if you take the normal Borromean rings, the normal three of them, I'm used to them looking like they're flat. I know that they can't actually be flat. They can't be properly circular. But yeah. they're, they're, uh, they're projected almost flat. Is there a nice way of rotating those rings to make them a bit more spherish? If you took them completely out of their plane, if you let them exist in 3D? Yes, there is. What does it look like? I googled these rings, and it kind of looks a bit like an orrery. Um, what does that word mean? Uh, an orrery is... Do I mean an orrery? It kind of reminds me of like a, 
I want to say the word gimboid. Hmm. Gimel? Gimboid sounds like a very offensive term. <laughs> um. Gimbal. Gimbal? Is that what I want? The, the A bit like the rotatey spinny top thing. It's a there's a sort of spherical compass thing, isn't there? It's similar, right? Google gimbal. Oh, I'm thinking of an armillary sphere. Right, okay, we've got a whole lot of things going on here. We need to define some of them. What what is that? Right. So an armillary sphere. Variations are known as spherical astrolabe. Armilla or armil is a model of objects in the sky on okay. a celestial sphere. It's something to do with astronomy, consisting of a, a spherical framework of rings centered on the Earth or the Sun. So if you Google armillary sphere, it looks a bit like that. Is it like a globe, but for the going out rather than in? It looks a bit like a Bohr model atom, to throw another term in there. They are very cool looking. Gimbal, how is that spelled? G-I-M-B-A-L Um, yes, but it's not exactly. I think there's a subtle difference. Talk me through. The smallest ring, kind of counterintuitively, is wider than the widest ring. Okay. Rather than on a gimbal, the smallest ring is smaller than the smallest ring. So, let's do an effort to explain to our listeners what we're looking at on these various things. Okay. We have three ellipsoid rings, one of which is vertical, one of which is horizontal, and one of which is the other direction. The other plane. Okay, yep. This is very hard to explain. Okay. You Should try. we do it relative to the Earth? Is that going to be easier? I suspect so. Because we can talk about, like, the equator and North Pole to the equator and that sort of thing. Okay. So imagine a ring around the equator to start with. Then imagine a ring around the Roslyn, or like the Greenwich Mean Time line. Pick okay. your choice. London okay, so going North Pole, uh, straight south through Paris. Yeah. Down to the South Pole, back up again the other side. Yep. Is that, that is is wider than like it sits on top of like if you were standing on the Earth, it would the, the Roslyn would be on like on top of the the equator. Okay. Yep. It lays on top of it. And then imagine a slightly differently shaped ring that also goes North Pole to South Pole, like a 90 degree rotated Roslin, that it goes over the top of the Roslin. Roslin is French, the Roslin. This is going, Um, like, say, through um, India rather than through Paris. Yeah. And it lays lays on top of the Roslin. At the North Pole and the South Pole. At the North Pole and South Pole, but it lays underneath the equator when it crosses the equator. Yes. Okay. So Which our is three rings are in the three different planes. Each one is over one, but under the other. Yes. Okay. And they wouldn't have to be too far away from circular. They do no, have not to, by much. They do have not to be at that scale. But, yeah. yeah. Um, pretend the Earth is a sphere for a minute. I know it slightly bulges out at the equator. Imagine it is a sphere. Do not care about that stuff in the slightest. Yes, <laughs> carry on. Imagine you were laying these as like pieces of ribbon around the Earth in the three different directions. It's only a tiny amount that one has to go over rather than under. So it feels like you could get arbitrarily close to circular in these things. Yeah. So, I could carve that. You think pumpkin. so? I could draw it on with felt tip first. And um, when you're doing the over or under, well, you've got an inch to play with. That's true. So you can kind of bend it. Yeah. Have one have the actual um, 
outside skin, and the other more husk. Yes. And then maybe uh, toothpicks to hold everything in place, as I do make them actually disjoint. I would love to see you try. <laughs> I'll give it a go. I might buy more than one pumpkin. There may be a sort of sad-looking pumpkin mess a few times, <laughs> but I think you might be able to get it eventually. Well, you know what happens when you actually light a pumpkin? Um, after the first couple of times you've had a candle in it, it looks a bit sad for itself. Mm. Starts sagging. And imagine when I've cut away most of the flesh like this, it's going to sag pretty quickly. Yeah, most of it's going to go. By the way, that the way that you phrased each one is over one and under the other is exactly how you would draw um, the standard three-ring yeah. structure. I'm just looking at them now. And one is, let's say they're three, three colours. The green one is always over the over the red and under the blue. Yeah. Yeah. So you can imagine it, if you had your pieces of ribbon tied around the earth, and then you, you popped the earth that just deflated and you uh, took it out from the system, so you just yeah. have the three pieces of ribbon in space, then you made each of the pieces of ribbon smaller and just laid them on your big galactic uh, shelf. It's the same structure. It's topologically the same. And so you could just shrink these things into being flat. Flattish. Is it? Is it? I think so. Because there are four crossing points on the 3D one. If you were to project it. And two of them are over and two of them are under. Isn't that true of the uh, rings as well? Each ring has two crossing points on the flat version. Both of them are over. Like I'm saying, for each pair of rings, oh, I see if what you, you project mean. the 3D one, you've got four crossing points and two are over and two are under on each of them. Imagine taking the 3D one and uh, tugging on one of the rings, just re- yeah. making it so it wasn't like in one of the other rings. Can you do that? Well, you Is that could. Possible? Uh, imagine they made a ribbon or a piece of string or something rather than solid. I think you can make one less neat at the sake of having fewer crossing points between the other two. Hang on. Like, we're both near computers. We've both got I'm lots of wires. It. Can we just try this out with some pieces of string? I think they're equivalent. And I don't think they're equivalent. Is it e- easier to go the opposite way? Can you turn... No, I, f- I think I can see it, but it's going to be very yeah, hard Yeah, you know what? Describe. I think I can see it going in the opposite way, yeah. I think I can. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to assume that they are. But I'm, I'm struggling to, to visualise the transformation and no amount of tug this, tug that, imagine their ribbons is is helping. I just need to, um, someone needs to make a gif. While we're here, when I was doing a bit of research on these things, yeah. uh, I saw a link and I clicked it, and it it reminded me of a classic puzzle. So I, I just thought I'd put this kind of not very puzzle to you. You okay. may already know it. Normally, if you're hanging a painting, so you'd uh, knock a nail into the wall, and then your painting will have like a, a loop of string attached to it mm-hmm. on the back and you put it over the nail fine if you remove that nail the painting would fall to the floor Yeah. now imagine instead of that you had two nails like on the same horizontal as each yeah. other Yeah. how could you attach the string so that if you removed either nail the whole thing would collapse it's probably a pen and paper thing if you draw the nails as two points how can you have a, a piece of string which uh, goes around them in such a way that if either of them went, the whole thing would slide down the page? Yeah, I found some ones where... If you remove one, one of them, but not the other. Yeah, which involves like pinching the two strings together and looping them around one and then around the other. Do you just have, do you just have to do that again? 
Like you, you pinch them together, you loop around the top of one, and then you loop around the top of the other. It's kind of what it is. Yeah. The devil's in the details of these. Yeah. I think I'm going to find it hard to sort of describe exactly what I'm doing. I think the easiest way to explain it. Imagine you're going, you're starting at the bottom. Uh, like you, you've got the piece of string attached to one corner of the painting. If you went, let, let's have, uh, there's a nail on the left and there's a nail on the right. Yep. And we're going to start with the top left paint corner of the painting. We're going to go clockwise around the left point and clockwise around the right point. Mm-hmm. And then going through between the nails, up between them, we're going to go anti-clockwise around the left one, and then anti-clockwise around the right one. That will loop back through the middle of that, downwards through the middle of them, Yeah. and it will join up back up to the left corner of the painting. Oh, oh, oh. Well, that is, that's actually quite a big difference as to only connect it to one point on the painting. Oh, you can connect it to any point. Like, connecting it to the one point or connecting it to two points, it just means the painting is part of the loop doesn't make a difference no so we've gone clockwise clockwise anti-clockwise anti-clockwise left right left right hmm um that is the simplest solution there are many solutions which are equivalent to that but with just more loops in them because the number of turns around the um around each nail is zero so it's like it's almost not attached yeah that's it yeah like this thing has a name it's called pock hammer's contour do you remember doing line integrals, contour integrals? Yeah. Uh, this is how you do a contour integral if you want to exclude two points. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just hideously messy. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just quite like it. It, it feels it's similar to uh, the Brunian stuff with the remove one and everything collapses structure. I remember someone, speaking of excluding points and things, I remember someone, um, someone once saying... In my in my physics lessons, you know how you integrate over all space. Well, some of space is black holes. So what happens then? Yeah. And everyone just went like, "Shut up." <laughs> the influence would be too small, negligible. Physics has a lot of very elegant formulas, all of which are approximations to reality, <laughs> um, except for quantum electrodynamics, which is perfect in every way. Everything else is wrong. QED is true and reflects reality. You're uh, you're really selling that narrative throughout the course of Odds and Evening. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna stick to it. QED infallible. Everything else is, has to fix around QED. I, I'm just thinking more about that Potkammer's contour thing. Yeah. About three nails. Probably do that. It feels like extending that like clockwise, clockwise, anti-clockwise, anti-clockwise, like left, right, left, right thing. So it's like... Yeah, you could do that for three. I don't think you don't think you could do it for one. You could do it for three, but maybe you have to take two nails out. It'd be nice if we could do it with one. Any nail went. I mm. I think it's the same maths we're doing here with the Brunian stuff and with the pot camera stuff. Mm. Because you, if you imagine with the uh, the loop of string that you get with the pot camera, if you put a closed loop through it where each of the nails was, it it's like it's a Brunian link between those two things. I think it's the same maths, so I'm, I'm sure you could take, like, the Brunian four-ring stuff and turn it into a solution for the three-nail version of Potcammer. Hmm. Maybe. Hard to visualise. It's, a... it's like you're waving your hand in the direction of it and going, this is the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming along to our very spooky episode of Odds and Evenings. Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to rate how good our conversations were. Um, 
what do we start? What, what do we do first? It's a very self-indulgent way of uh, saying what we do here. <laughs> um, how satisfied were we That's with better. what we discussed today? So, the first thing we did uh, was fin- thinking about zombie outbreaks and vampires with cellular automata. Mm-hmm. Automata. Yeah. We didn't come up with anything. No. We talked about how we model some of these things. I would like it if we could come up with a neat version which had a two species which led to actual interesting behaviour. Mm. Um, it would be nice if it was actually deterministic rather than probabilistic with these things. Back a couple of years ago when I was trying these things, uh, one of my requirements was I had some of the interesting things from Conway's Game of Life. So I wanted something like a glider to still be a thing. But we didn't experiment um, with any of these sort of things. Right. But that that was less modelling. That was me, okay, what happens if we change the rules a bit to have two species? Can I still get interesting mathematical behaviour? Not, can we do a nice model for what's going on here? It would be cool to have a, um, a spaceship that had a stowaway. Yeah. Like, there was always a zombie stowaway on a spaceship. And it was kind of partly required. Well, we'll talk about uh, multi-state cellular automata with... Um, Langton loops at some point in the future. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the more states you have, the more complicated stuff you can do. Mm. It's a bit like DNA. Uh, but I wanted to get something kind of parasite host or uh, I don't know, predator prey going on. And I think there, are, there will be some set of rules out there that will work well. But I, I think your point that we want few rules but lots of complexity is a good one. And so I, I think there's more to do on this. Number? Four. Oh. Yeah. You can do the same. I'm going to say four. Right, what do we right, do the next, that? the next one really annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> the next one was the um, mathematics conversations. So we had a little bit of stuff into why it is that conversational groups typically break down into, into fours and threes and twos. So we had a mathematical conversation about the maths of conversations. You need to stop right now. Stop, you're violating the law. <laughs> And yeah, so we, there was a little bit around breaking into twos, threes and fours, which is fine. Something to think about when you're designing a table, I think, or designing a, a restaurant space, hmm. is to take into account that things are going to break up in that way. Like one of the least be- one of the least good things in the world is when there's five of you sitting at a table, and there's one person who juts out, and they're kind of on the hook for the two people next to them. To have a conversation with them. Like, they're not really going to be able to do the cross-diagonal thing. Yeah. So the only appropriate way to sit five people around a table is to have four of them in a square and then one what? cross-legged on the table in the middle. In the middle. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, on a uh, on a, on a lazy Susan so yep. they can rotate around and one person's blindfolded. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, you know what? We came up with an answer, you know, by all ways that we've described good autumn evenings conversation in the past. If we come up with a stonkingly good answer, we ten it. And yet, I am dissatisfied. It, we've gone further away from actually getting a proof of these things. When we were talking about it with time signatures, like, we got a neat pattern. We didn't know why it's true. And it's... I know why this is true even less. So we had a neat pattern, now we have an even neater, even better pattern 
and the fact that we know nothing about why it works is uh, infuriating. Eight. Okay, quite high. Yeah, I think I'm going to go higher. Thinking about it, it's not ten category because we don't know why it works, but I'm happy to give it a nine because I got my answer. Kind of. Yep. And what was the last thing we talked about? Um, Brunian links. Brunian things with pumpkins. I'm not enjoying any of this pronunciation, by the way. I've been calling them Baromian rings my entire life, and I don't like that there's another word, and I don't like that the original word is apparently pronounced differently. Yeah. It's Byzantine all over again. I don't like it either. But that's just the words. That's how it is. I like the idea of these three rings actually in 3D space, as opposed to their flattened version. I think that's quite pretty. Hmm. And in some ways it's easier to see what's going on. You got one which is inside one, which is inside one, which is inside the first. And by inside I mean like in one of the three directions. Yeah. The picture makes it fine. He says on an audio format it maps. Yeah. For those of you who watched Xavier Renegade Angel, imagine it's like a (laughs) it's like a Thorito. Um and that's all I'll say on the matter. So I I don't even know what you mean by that, and I've seen some of Xavier Renegade Angel. There's a bit where he makes a burrito that's inside a burrito that's inside the heart of that same original burrito. Okay. It's like an inf- infinitely recursive set for stuff. Yep. Yeah. Because it's a sh- show based around philosophy, basically. Give us a number. I was give first. What are you thinking? Well, I'm not going to one that's going to have to carve this thing. So I want to give it something quite high because I'm very much looking forward to a kind of sad looking destroyed pumpkin <laughs> uh, on my social media. And maybe we'll put it on Twitter as well, if you're feeling daring. Yep. Or self-effacing at the time. Yeah, it is totally carvable. We came up with the answer that, yeah, you can totally do this. And you can even make these kind of quite thick, right? Like, yep. they don't have to be thin things. No. If I can get yeah. most of the shape of the sphere still there, yeah. that'd be good. Yeah. So I'm going to... I'm going to... Hmm. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about this. My... Look, my gut says I'm going to give this a 7, but I don't know why I'm not giving it more than that. So I'm going to give it a 7. 7-2. Seven, 72. Good. Well, thank you everybody for coming along to this very spooky episode of Odds and Evenings. Um, uh, my name has been Alex. Alaric's name has been Alaric. Uh, if you would like to find us online to say words and things to us you can go to our website at oddsandevenings.com you can go oddsandevenings.com forward slash contact if you would like to contact us there's a contact form there feel free to email us um things you can email us about any problem from any episode ever if you have something to say about it suggestions for problems or like um if you're a Nigerian prince and you need some money we can help you out um additionally you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash odds and evenings or at odds and evenings. Um, talk to us on there. Sometimes we post on there. Um, sometimes we don't, but sometimes we do. And when we do, it's pretty good. Like, well, the, the only reason that we are um, going to the upcoming um, Maths Jam event is because someone reached out to us on the Twitter. So there we go. It does cause things to occur in real life. Um, what else? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at SpeakMouthWords. Uh, title Music by David Russell, 323, on YouTube. Go and check him out. Um, is there anything else? Can't find Alaric, sorry. Not allowed. <laughs> uh, you can find him on any odds and evenings things. 
Oh, also give us, you know, ratings on iTunes and, and go to our Reddit and, and do the other one. Facebook. I'm on Facebook too. Uh, it's getting whatever, quite what, long. Choose your poison. Yeah. Choose your poison. We're, we are omnipresent. We should be called omnipresence and evenings. Omnipresence and eternity is the new show <laughs> when we transcend. It's called a robberous. Great, everyone. Bye. Bye bye. Uh, hang on, there's a beast attacking something in this room. <laughs> a spooky Halloween beast. I have a beast in the sky, actually. Mew. Thank you. Cool. It was in your cat, folks. Hmm. Right. Don't worry, folks. <laughs>